Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the last six verses of this chapter um, just before we read, so I don't think I need to do a lot of review. Uh, If you're new with us, we've been going through this book for two and a half years now and have made our way to chapter 20, beginning with the very genealogy of the life of Jesus on earth, his human genealogy, going through his baptism, his temptation, his ministry, really the birth of Christ, the announcement of the birth. We started with all of that, just all the different parts of his ministry, and it has now brought us down to chapter 20, uh, the end of it. Um, He has recently, for the third specific time, told his disciples what will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. As I've said, by way of review multiple times, we are now in the month of late March, probably early April back at that time period because it is the Passover season. And just before this passage, uh, the mother of James and John with her two sons asked for special privilege to be on his right and on his left in his glory, in his kingdom. And the Lord kind of shot that down and taught how he sets the tone. And like, in other words, it isn't about those positions. It's about serving and the one who will end up having those positions or the one the father has ordained to have those positions and it'll be those in high rank who have made themselves of low rank on earth and serving others and so with that in mind we're getting ready to read verses 29 to 34 but just before we do if you have your bible open peek ahead to what we think should be next week right peek ahead are you there what does chapter 21 say is getting ready to happen we notice that it talks about the triumphal entry. So we've spent two and a half years on 20 chapters, and then beginning next week, we start chapter 21. Triumphal entry is on what day of the week? Anybody remember? We call it Palm Sunday. Triumphal entry is on Sunday. One of the Gospels calls it the first day of the week. So what that means is we know this book has 28 chapters. The last chapter is about the resurrection, so that means the next seven chapters after today are going to be about six days. So we're going to spend seven chapters on six days. We're going to really start digging down, drilling down more deeply, still progressing through the book. So this is the last event with that in mind. Uh, today's text is not theological. I'm not telling you there's no theology in it. We're going to draw some theology, but this text is narrative. It's pure narrative. This is not a discourse. We've had discourses in chapters 5, 6, 7. We had discourse in chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 18. Now this is just a narrative of what's happening. And so what I want to invite you to do, even as I'm getting ready to read, I want you to take an aerial view. So if you're, you're going to, to get the most out of this, you're going to need to put yourself into the story. Go back in time. Don't make it sepia. Make it color. Don't make it black and white. They had color back then. The earth had color. Put yourself, maybe you're an aerial view watching what's about to happen. Or if you want to put yourself, I've I've done both of these in my mind. I've got to read this passage between 30 and 40 times this week. Maybe you want to put yourself on the side of a road. I'm going to tell you, there's a town, there's Jericho. They're going to Jerusalem. In a minute, I'll tell you how close that is. And that'll give us a cue of what time frame, how close to the cross we're getting. There's going to be a progression, what what Matthew's going to cause call a great crowd, and so in my mind, forgive me, um, there's going to be two men. So there's this town Jericho, they're heading out of Jericho, there's going to be two men on the side of the road, and there's going to be this progression, what's called a great crowd, and they're heading to 
Jerusalem. Maybe you want to take a view of overhead. So you need to go ahead and get in that. Pick your, pick your stance as we're getting ready to read this. And then put the piece of information on the map and see it unfold in your mind. Verse 29. And as they, Matthew would be part of the they, this is the Lord and his disciples. And as they went out of Jericho, so he's done miracles over by the Jordan River. Now he's headed to Jerusalem. He's told them what's going to happen when he gets there. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. You see that already? You got that in your mind? Maybe you're on the side of the road, and in my, one of my views is there's a great crowd coming from my right, passing to my left. Or if you're looking at an overview, there's, there's this town, they're kind of exiting the edge of town. There's this great crowd. The Lord and his disciples are up at the front. Great crowd followed him. Verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men. Mark and Luke focus on one of those blind men. Matthew, there were two. Matthew compliments that and lets us know there were two. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. So you got the picture. Here's this progression, leaving Jericho, large crowd, two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they, the two blind men, heard that Jesus was passing by, so they get word, they're blind, they can't see, they hear Jesus is passing by. The idea, he's going to be passing by, he is passing by. Text says, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out. They cried out. I mean out. They cried out. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. This is what they say. Lord, Mark and Luke tell us, they also say, Jesus. Lord, I don't know the order exactly. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. There's variation of order apparently because they say these things multiple times. One of the gospels says they began saying was the idea. So they're going to say this over and over. Verse 30 again. They heard that Jesus was passing by. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them. Again, taking the other Gospels into account, we know that the crowd, it was many rebuked them, rebuked them sternly. And one of the Gospels says it was mainly those that were up at the front of the crowd, presumably up near the Lord and his disciples. So it's not just like one guy, hey, pipe down. Many are doing this, telling these two men to be silent, the text says. But they cried out all the more. Oh, yeah? Be quiet. Stop. They don't stop. They cry out all the more. You thought that was crying out. I've got another gear. They kick it up a notch. What are they saying? Again, same thing. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping. Jesus, I think the King James words it, stood still. ESV words it this way. And stopping, Jesus called them. And said, let me point out, again, I'm, I'm not taking time to look at the other Gospels. You can look at this on your own time. The idea he called them means they're not exactly with him. He sends word. Someone goes and tells them. You can read this in Mark and the primary one that the other two Gospels deal with. He gets up, throws his cloak off, and in such excitement, he quickly makes his way to the Lord. And when he gets in front of the Lord and the other with him, they're both here. Matthew's telling of both. Verse 32. 
And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? So there's two blind men. They continuously keep calling out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. He stops, calls them. They go get them, bring them up to him. What would you have me to do? Your sarcastic voice inside says, Hello, (laughs) what do you think we want? That's not what they do. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, he had pity. He had compassion. Literally, his heart was moved. He felt it physically. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. The other two gospels talked to how he spoke to them. But he touched their eyes with his hand. And immediately, they recovered their sight and followed him. And Matthew gives us a nice, concise version of the story. So quickly, by way of introduction, let me say this. Chapter 21 starts with the triumphal entry. We know that's on Sunday. If you want to write this down, Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, about 15 miles. Think about that, 15 miles. I'll go ahead and tell you they're going to be ascending from Jericho to Jerusalem about 3,000 miles or 3,000 feet in altitude. So you don't just like clip along at four or five miles an hour when you're doing that. So they're down in a flatter part, but they're getting ready to start an ascension. The next 15 miles, they have to climb 3,000 feet. And so however long it takes to cover that 15 miles, I hear that, and that tells me, in my mind, at least as of now, I may discover something more. This is the last thing that Matthew gives us before we head into what happens on Sunday. This tells me we're probably looking at earliest Wednesday, probably Thursday, Friday, a week from the Lord's crucifixion. That's the time period. So we're getting very, very close. And the other thing, look at verse 29. I'm only going to make this comment on verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So this, as, in my mind, as this progression is taking place out of the town, headed toward Jerusalem, this great crowd does not mean they happen to be behind the Lord. It means that they are intentionally following the Lord because they have such great anticipation of what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He's setting the pace. I mean, they could get around and go on past him, but this, they're getting all bottlenecked up behind him. And remember that the words great crowd has been used multiple times already. Back in chapter 13, there was such a great crowd, Jesus has to get in a boat and go out onto the Sea of Galilee to use the water to project back, speaking at such a great crowd. Two other occasions, the crowd was so great, we're not told the total number of people, but there were 5,000 males that were fed and 4,000 males, meaning adult males, and we ran those numbers, and we're assuming it's somewhere between 20 to 25,000 people. So I don't want you to think, oh, there's a great crowd. He probably had 50, 75 people behind him. Oh, he had three or 400 people behind him. We're talking about thousands of people from Galilee and Perea are getting behind the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this procession that is heading toward Jerusalem. For the Passover, notice number one, persistent pleas for mercy. Persistent pleas for mercy. We find that in verse 30 and 31. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Mark identifies one of these two men. His name is Bartimaeus. We know that he's blind. They're both blind. One's name is Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus was a beggar. That's implied. When you lived in that day, they didn't have some of the programs that we have today. You would be a beggar. That's what you were able to do. 
Here they're sitting by the roadside. This procession is coming through town. They're up on the roadside. In my mind, they're on the left side of the road. You put them on the right, it doesn't matter. They're on the roadside. They're not there randomly. They're there intentionally, very specifically, very strategically. Why? Think about it. This makes total sense. They're on the roadside because that's the best place to receive charity from Jewish pilgrims, Jewish worshipers who are making their way to Passover. And because they're on vacation for a week and they're with their family and they're going to go celebrate how God delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And they're going to go like especially get right with God and worship God and seek favor and blessings from God. You've got to know that they're especially generous at that time of the year. So if you're ever going to get alms and charity, this is the time. So they're going to get on the roadside trying to appeal to these Jewish worshipers making their way to Jerusalem. And so they're crying out. Everybody passes by. They're asking, alms, alms, alms for a blind man, a couple of blind men. Could you help us out? Can you spare any money? for? Well, of course they're able to do this. They're heading to Jerusalem to worship God, and they know that God favors charity. Can I just pause for a moment and make a point? Because this is a narrative, our goal this morning is to, as we learn on Wednesday night, to see what the text says, then what the text means, and then also along the way, what does the text, how does it apply to our life? So I want to apply it just for a moment. They're not randomly sitting roadside, they're strategically sitting roadside. They're putting themselves where the blessings are. These two blind, these two blind men intentionally, wisely, they put themselves where the blessings are. Guys, because we're talking about blessings, all blessings from God are absolute grace. It's always grace. He never owes us. So anything I'm about to say, don't think, I do that, God has to bless. God never has to bless us, but God tends to bless at certain times and in certain places. These guys are smart enough to put themselves where the blessings are. I wonder, do you put yourself where the blessings are? Do you make a habit? Is it your pattern to regularly put yourselves where the best blessings? I believe the best blessings of God are spiritual. I just wonder how many people are in this room this week that God had a tailor made for you, a tailor made for you blessing, but you missed it on the day that you needed it the most because you skipped your time in the Word of God. You just didn't have time that day. But had you read that, that day, it would have given guidance or encouragement, or it would have prepared you for what was coming later in the day, but you didn't have time. Or there are some, no doubt many in this room, you don't read the Word of God on a regular basis. You don't have a reading pattern, and we're going to find out in eternity. How many times did you miss tailor-made blessings that would have been for you and would have fit you perfectly? How many people listening right now missed out on tailor-made blessings from God because they weren't where the blessings happening because they didn't have private prayer time with God? You just skipped it. And I have to say the other obvious one. Through the years, long before here and certainly since I've been here, I have known enough about people's lives to know what's going on and to know what's going to be said in the text and literally not preaching to someone but knowing, boy, so-and-so ought to get something from that text. Lo and behold, you come and you teach it and you preach it and they're not here. They're in town and they're healthy but they're not at the house of God. They skip church, skip their Bible reading, skip their prayer time, and wondering why they're struggling in the Christian life. These two guys wisely put themselves where the blessings are to be found. Look at verse 30. 
And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard, it doesn't necessarily say they heard Jesus passing by. They heard that Jesus was passing by. I thought too much about this. I won't go into all of this. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in the scene, realizing, man, this is like peak season. If I'm ever going to get charity and I'm a blind man, this is it. Probably maybe this, literally this procession is my number one time all year, maybe. Pentecost will be another one. And, and the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, that'll be three, my three best times of the year if I live in Jericho. And what better place? I'm right out of town. So they've made last stops. And here they're heading up to Jerusalem. And I want to hit them up there. And so these two men... Being blind and beggars, put you be them for a moment in your mind. They are totally in tune with everything that is happening on that road. I mean, they hear every pebble, every footstep. They can tell how many people are passing by, and they're asking for charity as they go by. I wonder, I can't say this, in my mind I'm wondering, were things going a little slow this year? We should have more people this morning. What's happening? Or did it ever occur to them? But eventually they start hearing something coming that they know is very unusual. Maybe it's been slow because there's, what is that noise? That sounds like a crowd of people. Oh, this is a massive crowd of people heading this way. What's going on? And then they hear Jesus is passing by. Well, they've heard of Jesus. And so here comes Jesus is passing by. And notice what verse, the verse says. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out. Get ready to write a note. MacArthur writes that this word, cried out, is a very strong word. It's very specific. It has a meaning. So we know that the New Testament is written in Greek. The Greek word here means cried out. Okay, what does cried out mean? He writes that it was, let us hear it. Hear it first. It was used for any sort of screaming or anguished shout. In other words, I'm going to insert this. There's stress in the voice. How is it used? He writes again. The word for cried out was used for any sort of screaming or anguished shout. It was used one way that we can understand of a woman's cries at childbirth. So when a woman, again, pre-epidural days, when she's giving birth, she is crying out. She's not too worried about what everybody around her is thinking. She's crying out, full-throated. There is stress in the voice. Screaming, anguished Shouts. This same idea we learn is used by those who are going to call for the crucifixion of the Lord. They're going to call for crucify, crucify. When Jesus cries out, it is finished on the cross, this is the word. He cried out. I mean, he shouted. There was stress, anxiety, victory. Not anxiety, but um, amplification and victory in his voice. Like literally stressing the vocal cords. He is projecting. I cannot say this how they would have said it that day, or I wouldn't be able to preach the rest of the day. I know my voice. So it didn't go like, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. That's not how they're doing. What's that noise? Jesus is passing by. Jesus is passing by. Jesus is passing by. So here comes the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Now I can't yell full throat. Have mercy, please. Son of David, would you shut up? Would you be quiet? And all they do is get louder and louder. We have a lot to learn from these men. What are they crying? Lord, now, let me be honest. Them calling Jesus Lord is not how you think of Jesus as Lord. You hear Lord, you think Jesus is Jehovah. He's Yahweh in the flesh. 
He's the absolute ruler and master of all the universe. In their theology of that day, they would, have known, they would not have known that. And so they're just calling it a respectful term, rabbi, teacher, master, lord, exalted one, one that's way above. So it's very respectful. But notice the other two things. They're asking, would you have mercy? You don't owe us. You don't have to do this. We understand. You could just blow us off and keep moving. Would you please have mercy? But notice particularly the second, the third thing they say. Son of David. Because there's a lot in that. Not every descendant of David went around being called son of David. What they're saying is, you are the son of David. We've heard that before. One of the the great confession of Peter up in Caesarea Philippi was that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. These two men do not know yet that he's the son of the living God, but they get the first part. What they're saying is this. We know your genealogy. We've heard your genealogy. We know you're a descendant of David. We know where you've been born. We hear of your miracles. We know how you keep on fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. We've concluded you're the son of David. They wouldn't call it the Old Testament. It's the Bible they had. The prophets have predicted you're the one that fulfills the, the prophecies. We know who you are. You are the son of David. We know who you are. How did they know this? Here's what's so shocking. They've never seen one miracle of Jesus, and yet they're totally convinced you are the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament. You are the promised prophesied one. You are him, and they're crying. That is great faith. The other two gospels, Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you well. He compliments their great faith. Their great faith stands in contrast to many other people in that day who we're getting ready to read about in the coming chapters who saw the evidence of Jesus' miracles or saw them in person or, again, saw those that they knew used to couldn't see or didn't have an arm or couldn't walk or had leprosy, and all of a sudden, what happened to you? Well, Jesus did, and all they did was go around trying to find ways how Jesus did that without acknowledging he's the Christ. They refused to believe. These two guys believed, having never seen. All they had to go by was what other people said. You know they remind me of? They remind me of those of us in the room this morning, myself included. I'm not bragging on us. But there are many of us through the last 2,000 years and sitting here this morning who have put the full weight of our eternity. We have entrusted. Let this sink in. By the way, I'm not saying this to shake your faith. Eternity is real. You are going to spend somewhere forever and ever And if you're like me, I've entrusted the full weight of all of my eternity in a Savior I've never seen, I've never heard him, I've never touched him, he's never touched me physically, but I believe it 100% because I'm going all in on what this right here says. I'm trusting this, what I've heard about you, I'm all in on Christ, I'm nothing on anything else. I have no backup plan, I'm all in on the one true Savior. These two guys saw nothing, they only heard, but man, they believed. And they cried out, and they cried out, and they cry out. And people in the crowd, probably because they're irritated, it's inappropriate, this is not the time, be quiet, shut up. It's not about you, you're ruining the moment. This procession is moving to Jerusalem. We're going to go take Jerusalem. We're going to throw off the Romans. He's going to set himself up as king. We don't have time for you. Stay down. But these two guys... Verse 30 again, 
When they heard Jesus passing by, they cried, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them, be silent. But they cried out all the more. Why? They're desperate. This is their window of time. Jesus may never pass this way again. They cried out, and they will not be denied. They refuse to stop crying out to the Lord until they get what they want. And oh, how many lessons there are for us this morning. Can I tell you who they remind me of? Again, I'm using another personal illustration. They remind me of 1979. Ben Lippin Bible Camp just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. This little kid, nine-year-old boy. I heard the gospel preached on Monday night. I heard the gospel preached on Tuesday night, that second week of June, 1979. They put all of us on a, some buses, took us up to Mount Olive Baptist Church, little bitty white Baptist church, country as it gets, I mean, way up on the mountain. I remember I'm sitting on the left side, and I remember I'm sitting at either the last row or the next to the last row. And when the gospel was preached, once again, I don't know the terminology. All I know is something's happening inside of me, and I'm about to bust. But while I'm feeling conviction for my sin and knowing that I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior, inside of me, there's this whole other voice because I'm so shy. I am so self-conscious. I would not dare want a crowd of people to see me and to all look at me and to see me walk down the aisle or to see me raise my hand. And so as I'm feeling these two dynamics, there's a voice inside saying, don't do anything, just stay still. Let it pass. It will subside just like it did on Monday night and Tuesday night. Just let it subside one more night. That's what was going on. That's the pressure that I was feeling like they were feeling. But praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit never stopped. And he gave me that sense of urgency that overcomes fear and overcomes peer pressure and that sense of urgency that always accompanies real salvation. And he just kept drawing me, and I reached a point I don't care who sees me. I don't care who's looking or staring. I've got to go settle and make sure that I've put my faith and trust in Christ. And I got saved. Now, have you ever had that point? These two guys will not be denied by some naysayers. Last thought I have on the first point is this one. And it's probably the key. Question. Boy, if this was Wednesday night, we'd pause and I'd really make you like put your brain in action and come up with some answers. Here's my question. As this procession's going through town, we have these two men on the side of the road. At what point, look at verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them. At what point along the procession did Jesus stop? At what point does Jesus stop? So if we read this over and over, you would conclude and say, well, let's go see what Mark says and let's go see what Luke says. You would conclude... Well, Jeff, the text never says at what point Jesus stops. True. But I contend, again, as I read this over and over, and in fact, it was in the, early, the first few times of reading this, it started to occur to me, and again, I wouldn't die for what I'm about to tell you, but I think this seems to be pretty safe. Verse 32 has a major hint in it as to when the Lord stopped. Look at verse 32. So they're crying out all the more. They keep crying out, crying, be quiet, be quiet. No, they just keep shouting. And stopping... Jesus called them. Remember a while ago when reading it, they sent someone. You see this in the other Gospels. They sent someone. He comes to them. They focus on Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak in such excitement. He gets up. They move quickly, and they come to the Lord. So go back either to your aerial view. I want you to do a time lapse. Are you ready to do a time lapse visualization? 
So either you're here and you're watching this progression and you see the two beggars and at some point the procession will stop. When does that happen? Or if you're on the side, when does it happen? It says that he called for them. Now I'm stopping and thinking, if they're up here, here's the road, and the procession is coming this way, if they're shouting, shouting, Jesus have mercy on us, Lord have mercy, son of David, if they stop back here, why would he send for them to be brought to him? If they stop here, why would he send for them to be brought to him? It's just like, I'll be there in a minute. If they stop right here, it's not going to be, Jesus is not one of these, where, you know, like, send for them, and they're right there. No. They're right there. Tell them to come. Now, what would you, no, no, no. That tells me it doesn't happen here. Or he would just like talk to them right there. What would you have me do? So what does that leave? It's happening. The procession has moved past. Because it's easier, apparently, because we're talking about thousands of people. And Jesus is so wildly popular. It's easier for somebody to go get these two beggars and bring them up to Jesus than it is for Jesus to make his way back through the crowd, back to these beggars. So it seems the evidence to me that the procession stops up here and the Lord calls them and brings them. You say, Jeff, okay, that's great. That kind of makes sense. What's the point? Everything in these guys, what they would go by, all, all their senses would tell them, they hear the crowd coming. They're crying out, crying out, crying out, crying out, crying out, crying out. And the Lord just keeps on moving. He doesn't stop. Their window for help seemingly has closed. But they just keep on shouting. Keep on crying out. Not your day, man. I'm going to keep Jesus, please, please, have mercy. And then he stops. What does that tell me? Had they, listen, listen, Grace, had they not persisted, they would not have received their sight. But they persisted. Say it again. If they did not persist, they would not have gotten what they wanted. Jeff, wake up. you got to learn something from these two guys. Their persistence is a major lesson for we Christians. It's a major model. For, it's one of the main points the Lord wants us to get. They persisted when all the evidence said, just wasn't our time. Maybe he didn't hear us. Surely he heard us. He had to hear those people telling us. I can't tell you why the Lord just keeps passing by, but seemingly he's testing their faith. And he passes by. And then he stops. Write this down. Their perseverance is a model for every Christian who prays. Barclay writes it this way, quote, It often ha oh, this is so true. It often happens that we are very easily discouraged. We, I appreciate his transparency because I can agree. It often happens that we are very easily discouraged from seeking the presence of God. But he says, it is the man or woman, hear this line, it is the man who will not be kept from Christ who in the end finds Christ. It is the one who will not be kept from Christ who finds Christ. I'm not a runner. I have a good friend I used to teach with, on staff with. He's a real runner. Mike Davis, and I've known some others who run as well. They talk about it. Now, get what I'm about to say, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to go to the second point in a moment. They talk about this thing called runner's high. And supposedly, when you run, now listen, it doesn't happen at the beginning. 
But when you run, many runners talk about you hit a point in the run where everything's just clicking. Everything's in balance. You found the perfect speed. You're in the zone. You've been at it for a while. You've got some endurance. I mean, you're in your time, and your mind just like gets really clear. And you start just thinking in a way that you don't anywhere else. And it's almost like can't get home fast enough and write those thoughts down because now I know what I got to do in that presentation. Now I figured out what we got to do to solve that problem at work. Oh, that's the answer to the crisis that's going on in the family. And it just all comes so clear. Okay, that's running. So, Jeff, what's your point? When it comes to praying, some of y'all are going to be like, sounds interesting. Others of you are going to be like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Here's what I wrote. In a far greater way than the runner's high, there are levels of clarity, intensity, and genuineness in prayer. You say, what sets those levels of clarity? I mean, there's times when you're praying. There's times when you're like praying. I will propose that the distinguishing factor between those levels of clarity, intensity, and genuineness is the strength of the awareness of God's presence. There's like praying out there, and then there's praying to God. You're so aware of his presence, you're talking directly to him. There are levels of that. And to Barclay's point, listen, things discourage us from seeking the presence of God. You say, Jeff, what, what, what discourages, what makes it hard and difficult to get to these levels of intensity and clarity? The things that discourage us from seeking God include, here's the key, the effort and the intentionality that it takes to overcome things like mental and physical distractions. You're trying to focus on God and your mind just keeps jumping all over the place and you're trying to focus on God and these things just keep happening around you and keep disturbing. Are you just going to quit? Are you going to settle at that point for the lesser prayer? It is pushing through the effort and intentionality that it takes to overcome internal and external noises. For me, this is one of mine, an awareness that the clock is ticking. Now, I have, again, I'm, I'm just venting. Some of y'all are like, sound like something real to him. Others of y'all are like, oh, Jeff, you too. For me, though, my devotional time gets to finish when it finishes because of my position. Uh, nobody's going to fire me here if I come in late because my devotions ran along, thankfully. You may get fired where you work. You're like, yeah, we're not buying that. You did that four times last week, but my devotions were really great this morning. Yeah, right, you're fired. I have an advantage. I understand that. But I still sometimes I have this, like, I have desire. i got it mapped out. I'm going to get there. I'm going to do that at that time and that and that and that. And i got my day mapped out. And all of a sudden I get down to pray, and it's just difficult. And the clock's ticking. And I want to pray about these things. And I feel i got this much time. And it's taken me too long to get in the zone of clarity, intensity, and genuineness with the Lord. And that's where the temptation comes in. We'll just kind of settle for the lesser prayer. But I don't want to do that. I've concluded I would rather cover fewer things in my prayer and take slower, longer time to get to that point of intense, real, genuine prayer rather than just fire off a big, long list of things that never even connect to God. Like, what's the point? I want it to, be, I want it to matter. I'd rather pray about one thing, really, than about 15 things going through the motions. That's me. I'll tell you another barrier. The lack of emotion 
at the beginning of the pursuit of God's presence. You don't feel like it. Well, what are you going to do? Barclay says it often happens we're very easily discouraged from seeking the presence of God. It is the man who will not be kept from Christ who in the end finds Christ. Will you pursue and persist? These, these two guys, they're exemplifying for us the kind of prayers that God answers. Urgent prayers that persist even when it seems like the window's been closed. Now, I'm not here trying to talk you into keep praying for something that's not God's will. But have you stopped praying for something that is God's will? And he's just like, hey, do you want it? Keep asking. Number two, we see a display of Jesus' compassion and power. A display of Jesus' compassion and power. Look at verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And stopping, right? All right, ready? Procession, 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 procession. Help, help. (laughs) And he stops. Can I contend when Jesus stops, the whole procession stops. Hey, hey, what's going on? And thousands of people. And just like a car wreck on the interstate, those who are close know what's happening. Go call them two guys over here. Yes, Lord. And off they go. They know what's happening. But the further you get away, what's going on? And all of a sudden, some good information and some misinformation. Right? What's going on? What's the hold up? And then some people who are kind of in this area start realizing the tall ones, the Ryan Rifes. Right? It's got something to do with these two guys over here. Oh, they're blind. They're blind. They must be taking spread the word. Oh, no. Off it goes. Forgive me. I've had too much time to think about in this in picture this week. <laughs> Here's the point. Two blind guys. We've got thousands of people being held up by two blind guys. Hey, Jesus already healed thousands of people. Two more is insignificant. We're going to Jerusalem. They're insignificant to everybody else, but not to the Lord. The Lord cares. To these two guys, their sight means the world. To them, it matters much, and to Jesus, it matters much. Everybody else else may say, not a big deal. What I'm learning here is that the Lord cares about individual people and their needs. Listen to me. Jesus has a great work to do, the greatest thing in the history of the world. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how all of eternity past and all of eternity future focuses and comes down on what will happen on the next Friday. Thursday, that Friday, Thursday, Friday, that, what's, what's going to happen? That's the key thing. And the Lord here is weighed down by that. He is laser focused on that. He's feeling the weight of that. And here comes these two guys keep calling out, help, help, have mercy. He moves past them, but they persist. And finally, the Lord says, call them and bring them to me. You know what that tells me? That Jesus is far more loving, far more caring, far more attentive to individuals than we ever give him credit for. So I want to ask all of you this morning, have you ever had the Lord Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit say, you have my attention. What do you want? We're in it. Say it. What do you want? Now, those of you who have been with us on Wednesday night, you're getting ready to hear it for the 15th time. But if it keeps coming up, I'm going to keep hitting it. What do we see? Verse 32. 
What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. If you're taking notes, write this down and go home. Put it into your life. I say it so often, but I'll repeat it here. The most effective prayers in the Bible are specific prayers. Very specific. What would you have me do? Oh, Lord, you know full well what they want you to do. I want you to say, what do you want me to do? Ladies and gentlemen, the most effective prayer. So this morning is a call to pray. This morning is a call to persist in prayer. This morning is a call to be specific in your prayers. Jeff, what part of our prayers need to be specific? Only these. Your adoration, your confession, your thanksgiving, and your supplication. Outside of that, you probably don't have to be that specific. If you come to the Lord and you're like, Lord, I love you, hear him say, why? I just love you for the way you are. What? All your attributes. Which ones? Grace, if you listen, let's start being specific. Let's start praying. God, I praise you because you are faithful, because you do not change, because you are eternal, because you are creative. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. Because you know all things, because you have all power, because you're holy, because you're good and you're gracious and you're merciful and long-suffering. It goes on and on. Just pick some out that especially and just worship him and adore him for that. Don't do, Grace, if you don't do this, and Father God, forgive me of all my sins. No, name the sin. Confess and receive forgiveness for that sin and that one and that one. Don't do this. God, thank you for all your blessings. Name them one by one. Literally, work with me, Grace. If you go on, put this in your life. Don't just sit here and say, okay, yeah, I've heard him talk about this. Go home. You say, I couldn't pray for 10 minutes if I had to. You put this in your life, and you just go home. You will not get out of Thanksgiving. You just sit there, and Lord, Lord, thank you that I can see. These guys couldn't see. Thank you, I can see. Thank you, I can taste. I can hear. I can walk. I can think. I have my being. Thank you for that family member, that family member, that one, that one, that one, that car. Thank you for that vehicle. Thank you for those clothes, those shoes, that shower, those, those, the food in, in the refrigerator. Go on and on and on. Get specific and thank God for it. And then on your supplication, your begging and pleading, even when it seems obvious, the Lord wants us to be specific. Why? I'll give you one reason, just one. Another one, it's the whole pattern of the Bible. The effectiveness of prayer is found in being specific and intense and persistent. But here's the reason. Being specific helps to ensure that we attribute direct answers to prayer to God and not to chance. So when you pray for that broadly and that broadly... You don't know if it was an answer to prayer or not. But when you pray specifically, and God meets it specifically, then you know and and your faith is built up. And prayer and your relationship with the Lord becomes real. Verse 34. We said this is a display of the compassion and power of Jesus. And Jesus, in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. He touched their eyes. So guys, I, you would think that I would have lots of great revelation on that point. But all I, I don't. So here's, here's all I'm going to say. Jesus has taught us that the light of the body is the eyes, and these guys lived in darkness. The only thing you'd be able to do is go home and literally just close your eyes tightly 
and realize the darkness that you're in and maybe go in a dark room, close your eyes tightly and put your hands over your eyes so you get two or three layers of darkness and just imagine what it would be like to live in that and then open them. Literally, the body is in darkness. You could try to a little bit on a little minor level right now. You close your eyes, the body is in darkness, but when you open your eyes, the body is full of light. How did this happen? The Lord took pity. The Lord touched them. He talks to them, and he says for them to have their sight, and all of a sudden, they now have great new light and perfect vision. How is he able to do this? Go with me. Hold your spot. Flip over Ephesians chapter 3. Just want you to see a quick verse, Ephesians 3. I do want you to, like if you have your Bible, turn there, it'll be better. Ephesians 3. So how is he able to do this? So you're going to see verse 20 on the screen. I did not have verse 21. I'll read it here. Because the key thought I want you to see is in verse 20 itself. Let's read it first time quickly. Ready? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go back to verse 20 again. Look at it with your eyes. This is this doxology, this crescendo of the first half of Ephesians. This, all this theology accumulates and, and points to this before he gets real practical. Now to him, he's talking about God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now listen, what I did for the first time yesterday, I'm not telling you, you don't do it now. I put little numbers with words here. I put, well, I can barely read my numbers. I put the word one with ask. I put the word two with think. I put the word three with more. I put the, word, I put the number three with the word more. I put the number four with far. I put the number five with abundantly. And I put the number six with the word all. So that goes like this. I want everybody to catch it. Here's what the text is telling us. Because there's layers. The text is saying that God is able Now listen, he's able to do what you ask. Whatever you ask, God's able to do whatever you ask him. Number two, God is able to do whatever you ask or even think. He can do whatever you ask or think. Number three, he's able to do more than you ask. More than you think. You say, but I really need. He's able to do more than you're asking. More than you're thinking. We're not done. He's able to do far more than you ask. Far more than you think. We're still not done. He is able to do far more abundantly than you ask or. Still not done. He is able to do far, far more abundantly than all that you ask or think. And I'm not even doing, literally what the text is saying is if you set aside time, I'm going to defeat this verse. If you were to set aside time and just start dreaming and thinking how big you can go in your thoughts, you cannot think of a situation hypothetically that requires more power than God has practically and in reality. 
actually. Your hypothetical cannot match his actual. And it's not even close. Because the text does not say, now to him who's able to do far more than you ask. It says, if we, for the last 2,000 years, all Christians put all of our requests and all of our wild, crazy, just let our minds go thoughts, we still haven't come up with enough that challenges the power of God. And the way he's stacking these words, it doesn't mean, watch, put all of our requests and all of our great thoughts together. Could God? And we put them all out. Oh, look at that. But God could do it. No. The way he stacks up, it's like, no, it's not like that's the sum and he beats the sum. It's like multiple, like you don't even have any clue how powerful God is. My question is, Jeff, why would you ever stop praying to this kind of God who begs you to pr- bring your request to him? Bring your request. I've got way more power than you think I do. Now, here's the point. You say, Jeff, what's that have to do with Matthew 20? All that is said in Ephesians 3.20 is applied to Jesus because Jesus is God. Write this down. The display of power in verse 34 was in no way a strain on his ability as God. He didn't have to flex here to do this. I'm not saying he did nothing. Oh, he did something. This is awesome. No one else. None of the pretend faith healers today go around healing blind people, by the way. Let that sink in. Jesus does. Quickly. And Jesus and pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. What does that mean? So words mean things. Everybody's there, right? Look at verse 34. Jesus and pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. What does recovered their sight imply? What does it imply? It implies they used to be able to see, and they lost their ability to see. So again, I may be over baking the ham. I'm very apt to do that. And I might be wrong. I wouldn't die for this. In my mind, I just kind of thought, I'm conjecturing. Please, you say, Jeff, how dare you? I know some blind people, and that they would be very offended by that. I'm going to propose that having lost previous sight, that these two men no doubt lived with even greater longing than those who were born blind. I'm not saying those born blind don't have great longing. I'm saying it seems to me that those who lost their sight, these two men, would, by the way, it's what's implied, they are able to see again. Recovered their sight implies they could see again. So what I'm implying here is that since they've had it and lost it, They no doubt lived with even greater longing than those who were born blind. And I'm going to also contend that if that's the case, these two men of all men probably thought, if I ever get my ability to see back, I will be so thankful. I'd be so appreciative. Tell me some of your memories, man. Oh, you ought to see my kids. Oh, you ought to see. One time, there was this morning, and and off they go just telling us, yeah. I've seen that several times. And, and they just share this. And they're thinking, boy, if I ever got my sight again, I would never take it for granted like all of us in here do. We all, when's the last time you thank God that you're able to see physically? Barring one more time from Barclay, he writes the following. These two men were men of gratitude. Hear it. They did not go away and forget They followed Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke here. 
None of them is there a command from Christ. Now follow me. In fact, he says, go your way. You know what the way they went? Where Jesus was going. Again, he writes, these two men were men of gratitude. They did not go away and forget. They followed Jesus. Listen, here's the challenge. So many people, both in material things and in spiritual things, get what they want and then forget even to say thanks. How did they say thanks? They thanked God by following Jesus with their very life. There's no command. Why are you following Jesus? Because we have faith in who he is and we're just so grateful he gave us our sight. We would be beggars on the road if it weren't for him. We're going wherever he goes. And they followed him toward the cross. Christian, can I ask you this question? Has God granted a specific request that was so precious to you, but after he granted it, you have failed to go back and say, I mean it, like let your mind, just for a moment, it's going to be fat, like right now, like let your mind go. Has God granted a prayer request of yours? He did it specifically, he gave it to you, and it's dawning on you like, I never thanked God for that. I have two last thoughts this morning. Would you go? You can leave here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're talking about two men who couldn't see this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They were blind. They've lost their sight. They can't see. First Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 14. The natural person. The Bible says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Read it again. The natural person. You say, Jeff, who's this natural person? It is us by nature. The natural person is all of us by nature, hear me, by nature without God's Holy Spirit helping us. So if it's just you... You say, Jeff, I'm different. I have insight. I have discernment. No, you do not. The Bible is true. The natural person, all of us by nature, the natural person, two things, it says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, number two, because they're spiritually discerned. Number one, we do not accept that all of us by nature do not accept the things of God. If we don't accept the things of God, it means that we reject the things of God. All of us by nature reject the things of God. And it says all of us by nature do not understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. And the verses preceding that say we have to have God's Holy Spirit. Write this thought down. We, so we're talking about these two blind men. Now we're going to shift gears slightly. We are all born blind. All of us are born blind spiritually. What does that mean? That means we can literally, guys, listen, we can physically see God's truth. We can physically see God's truth on a page. I'm looking at God's truth right now. I can see it. I can see God's truth on a page. I can see God's truth on a screen. We can physically see it. But we will not be able to understand its true meaning or the urgency that it calls for unless God's Holy Spirit opens our spiritual eyes to be able to see it. You can't see it. You say, I'm special. No, you're not. I know someone who really is. They've got great insight, and they're lost. No, they do not. We don't see it. Ladies and gentlemen, 
All of us, because of our spiritual blindness, as we're born in this world, we can like literally hear the truth of God and we're not going to understand it. We can see it, not going to understand it. Lost person in the room, a part, a lost person watching right now, you're not a Christian yet. You don't have the Holy Spirit living inside. You don't have what it takes to understand God's word, God's truths. Let me, I'm, I'm going to throw four verses at you. Just listen to these. So with our natural ears, we're all going to hear God's truth. But the unsaved, the ones who, who's yet to put their faith in Christ, who do not yet have the Holy Spirit in them, will not be able to understand, and they're even going to want to buck at it. Hear what the Word of God says, John 1.12. So the Lord God, the eternal God, sends His eternal Son to the earth. He came as a Jewish man. He came to mankind. He came to the Jews themselves. Man rejected Him. The Jews rejected Him. But John 1.12, listen, listen. Here's God's truth. But... As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So we all just heard God's truth. Here's one. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We all just heard God's truth, but the old part of us, our sin nature, wants to bucket that. No, it's not everlasting life. Or no, there's more to do. You have to do more than believe. What else do you have to do? No, the Bible's telling you what it takes. We don't accept it. We don't understand it. The Bible says, First John, I'm using the same author, Gospel of John, first epistle of John, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By yourself, you're not going to make sense out of that. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Here's the last one. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All the sin we've committed in the past, even the sins we have not yet committed. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And the unsaved person who does not have the Spirit of God helping them hears that. Jeff... What's your point? Here's my point. We're born blind. If you're not yet a Christian, you say, Jeff, you're describing me. None of those verses move me. They don't make sense. If you can't make sense of the Word of God and you hear His truth and you're like, I see it right there. It's on the screen. I heard you just say those. I don't, I don't know what it means. If that's you, beg God. To help you to have spiritual vision. Beg him. Plead. Keep pleading. Say, God, there seems to be something to this Christianity and the death of your son. I don't understand it. Would you please open my eyes? Just keep pleading and begging. Your brother messed us up last week at lunch. Yanni or Laurel? Raise your hand if you have a clue what I'm talking about. Yanni, it's all the young people, and their parents. Yanni or Laurel? Go look it up on your phone. I did it again this morning. Don't do it now. You click this thing, you put up Y-A-N-N-Y or L-A-U-R-E-L, Yanni or Laurel. And there's going to be this audio that comes up, and it's just going to keep saying this little phrase over and over and over and over and over. And a lot of people hear Yanni, and a lot of people hear Laurel, Laurel, Laurel. Laurel, Laurel, and some here, Yanni, 
Yanni. And y'all, those of you that never heard it are like, what in the world is he talking? Those are two totally different things. And those of you that are here are like, yeah, I hear Yanni. And others are like, no, my friend right beside me, here's Laurel, crystal clear. Here's the thing. You may not hear one of those. You're like, I hear that one. But all of a sudden, when you finally hear the other one, it's like, I can't hear anything but that one now. I only hear that. People read the Bible in and of ourselves. It's like, oh, yeah, God's loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. I could say it. I can quote it. Are you trusting it? Once you see it, it is so simple. Once you really hear it, it's so simple. But it's only when God's Holy Spirit opens your heart and your life. He's got to open your ears, open your spiritual eyes. He has to put that life into you. Say, I'm not there. Beg him. I find when I claim James 1.5, even as a saved person, there's still things I don't know. I pray James 1.5 in some form almost every day, multiple times through the day. It's probably the number one thing I pray. God, you said, if any man, that's me, lacks wisdom, if we'll ask of you that you give generously and liberally and you don't upbraid and rebuke us and that we will have it if we believe. So I'm taking you up on that. God, I need wisdom in this. This message was going to be an absolute train wreck the other day, and I just prayed, God, you got to open this text. There's nothing here to preach on. And now it's 12 o'clock, and i got to wrap up. God, this is going to be the shortest message ever. I even told Deanna that the other day. We're going to get out really early. I don't have much to say. Unless you show me something, Lord. And then I had to delete, 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 and cut, edit. Here's my last thought. So beg him. Verse 30 of the text says, Jesus was passing by. Please listen. Jesus was passing by. These two men had a window of time. And it was going to be brief. And they didn't let it go. They didn't let it go. They persisted. I know I'm going back to where I started. They let nothing stop them from crying out to the Lord. I don't want us to get whiplash as we, you know, typical Baptist preacher gives the congregation whiplash as he brings it back to the gospel and a gospel appeal. I'm not trying to do that. All I'm saying, hell is filled with people. Listen, hell is filled with people right now who at one point or another on earth had an encounter with Christ through his Holy Spirit where they felt the conviction of their sins. They were convicted of their sin. And like me, when I was a nine-year-old boy in that church service, they felt the conviction, but they started thinking like I did. If you just put it off, just put it off, put it off. And even here's the lie from the devil. Don't do anything now. Don't act on it now. But Jesus is passing by right now. No, no, no. Don't do it now. Deal with your soul's greatest need at a little more convenient time. Right now is not a good time. I saw this played out about a month ago. Bless his heart. Trying to witness to a man. Deanna and I trying to talk to a man about his soul. There's obvious conviction. His phone just keeps lighting up. Three people telling him, you got to get home. You got to get over here. You got to go. Where are you at? Where are you at? Where are you at? Finally, he yielded as we were pleading and begging, do it now. Do it right now. Put your faith and trust in Christ right now before you get on that vehicle and leave. Do it now. I hope he gets saved. Barclay writes the following. So all these people, another convenient time for the people in hell, another convenient time never came. Barclay says, there are a great many decisions which have to be taken on the spot or they will never be taken. 
The moment to act goes past. The impulse to decide fades. There is a time to act and a time to decide. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Had I not got saved when I was nine, I don't know. Would I have gotten saved? I don't know. God's grace called and he powerfully pulled and dragged. And on my end, I had to put my faith and trust in Christ. And I called out on the Lord Jesus to be my Savior. Have you ever done that? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Would you bow your head just for a moment? Eyes closed. I've got to ask you. I'm going to actually ask for a raise of hands. I'm going to put it in the positive this morning. I'm going to ask you, you heard my testimony, I was nine years old, I was convicted, and it wasn't an outside source, but boy, inside my mind, everything was telling me, don't do anything, just write it out, conviction will pass. So I'm going to ask everyone present, maybe even you're at home watching this, you could even signal there in your living room, kitchen table, bedroom car, wherever you may be. Here's the question. Has there ever been a time where you felt God's conviction so powerfully and so strongly, so personally, and in that moment of conviction, you cried out in faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, like these two blind men cried for help and mercy. Have you ever had that time where Christ convicted you, the Holy Spirit drew you, convicted you of your sins, the Holy Spirit gave you faith in Jesus so much that you say, Jeff, there is a time where I had that and I yielded and I called out in faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. If that describes you, if you've had that time in your life, would you raise your hand? Please raise it up. Don't be ashamed. Don't raise your hand if you haven't done that. Thank you. I'm wondering... Is there anyone here this morning or even online that say, Jeff, I felt that before. Maybe you've let it pass thinking you'll do it at a more convenient time. Maybe even you're there this morning. I'm just wondering, is there anyone here this morning would say by a raised hand, Jeff, I am feeling a conviction in my soul that my eternity is not settled. I've never trusted the Lord Jesus as my Savior. And I don't want to let it. The Lord Jesus is passing my way this morning. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. I don't want to let it pass. If that is anyone here today, would you unashamedly just raise your hand right where you're at? Is there anyone like that in the room? I'm looking around. I'm going to give an opportunity. I'm not going to linger long. Anyone here? If there's anyone watching online, please reach out to us. If you need to come see us, come see us. Christians, just before I pray. Here's my final thoughts. Do you pray? Be honest. Do you pray? Do you have a prayer life? I got to ask. Be honest. Are you specific? Are you talking generalities? Do you really focus on God? Do you fight through the difficulties and determine God by your grace? I'm going to stay here till I get in your presence in a clear, powerful, intense, personal, genuine way. I gotta ask you, are you specific in your prayer request and are you persistent? Please, this morning is a message that calls us to. This is the Almighty who's able to do all that you ask or think far more, far more abundantly, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, all of us together. 
multiplied many times over. And he invites us to pray. Pray, gracefully, pray specifically. Pray spiritually. Pray carefully. Pray persistently. And then do you need to go back and say, Jeff, I've been doing that and God's been answering and I've not been saying thank you. If that's you, would you use this opportunity as we close in prayer to give thanks? Father, Father, I commit this message to you, this passage. Thank you for the lessons. Lord, may I persist when it's difficult to get clearly, genuinely, powerfully in your presence. Lord, may I push through those times. Lord, thank you for those times when it is so quick. Such grace. You just move me right into that. Thank you for that. Lord, when that is not the case, and it seems you've moved past me, Lord, may I persist, and may these join me, my brothers and sisters. Father, may we be specific in our prayers. May we be faith-filled and urgent and pray spiritual requests as your Holy Spirit leads us. Father, I ask you one more time. If anyone needs to talk to us while Jesus is passing their way, Lord, I pray that today would be their day of salvation and that they would take that step to seek us out. We ask in Christ's name.